like we inherit the burden of our past, we also inherit the burden of our understanding and the burden of our experience of life. And one of these inheritances is the meaning of the word yoga. Thanks to many new age books, This what I should use, or both. The word yoga evokes many images in our mind and of course, one of those images, the, the most common image that has gone into the mind of, uh, into the modern mind is yoga is a set of exercises which human beings do to keep themselves fit, to lead a rich egoistic life. Of course, this other part to lead a rich egoistic life is not mentioned, but <laughs> it is implicit how to yoga for success, yoga to make more money, yoga to, well, everything is possible through yoga. But there is another understanding of yoga, an understanding which comes right through the ages. In fact, an understanding which is implicit in the word itself, from which all the practices of yoga emerge, from the root yuj, to unite, to yoke. And we heard the beautiful uh, description that Shraddhalu gave in the morning of the upper ard and the parard. It's a union between the lower and the higher. That which now is separated or seemingly separated when we look at it from this angle. From the other angle, it is not separated. But from the angle of vision of the separate element in which consciousness is lost, there is a sense of separation and with that separation comes all the misery, suffering and everything else in life, if you go to the root of it. So yoga is a means to unite. Yoga is also that which is going on in the depths of creation. When it is said that by yoga I hold this creation, so what is that yoga that the divine is doing? What asana he would be doing? What kind of breathing exercises the divine must be doing? But what is this ancient yoga? Sri says very powerfully in one of his passages that by this ancient yoga I hold the stars and the hills together. What is this yoga? by which the Divine holds this creation together. And what is this yoga that we practice today? Yoga is essentially to unite these two aspects, one that is struggling below and one that is free above. Sounds very simple, but in practice it's very, very difficult because the very act of separation, the very act of division, 
makes this element so limited, so small that by its very nature when it touches the higher it tends to either dissolve or vanish. The ancient yogis used to say there is a belief in ancient tradition which probably is a true belief testified by the yogis that if one were to remain in a trance of bliss for certain number of days probably 21 days the body would dissolve one would just vanish such is the touch of that fire that current the yoga force is not a force mechanical force like electricity that we sit and pull and it's all fine you know in fact the mother says very dangerous do not try to pull yoga do not come to yoga in fact she says do you say that you want yoga and come to satisfy your ambition, vanity, etc., etc.? It is very dangerous because if any such wish or desire is concealed, the first thing that the yoga force does it, it unseals it. That is why some people wonder that this man went to an ashram or well anywhere to do yoga, but he ended up as a kind of, you know, had a breakdown, I don't know what would be the right word to say. People suffer breakdown in yoga. There is a fair amount of casualty in the path of yoga. So, it's not without certain footnotes, you know, like when you buy a product, there is something written in the footnote that all investments are subject to market risks. (laughs) All yoga is subject to the individual risks. To an extent it is true, especially when yoga is done by catching it at the wrong end and by doing it in the wrong way and for wrong means and purposes. Yoga force is the force of truth and doesn't allow it. Many people wonder when they start the process of yoga, they are very goody people very nice people, decent people, all of us are after all very fine people, (laughs) but (laughs) as the force of truth, at least that's what we believe, that everybody else is bad except myself. So, but as we grow into yoga, the yoga force uncovers from within us, layer after layer, at first gently, then with a little more harshly, then ruthlessly, and if we have caught the yoga at the wrong end, anything can happen. The fuse may blow out. So a long period is required of a sincere and dedicated preparation for yoga. He beautifully, Sumbhai has used the word. Even if you see the traditional yoga of Patanjali Yoga Sutra, it says there are certain, it starts with yama, niyama, do's, don'ts, certain rules of living, Why all these things are given? Because yoga is to become free. Yes, freedom comes, but there is a prize of freedom. The freedom that yoga gives is not the vital freedom, it's not the mental freedom. It's not everything is yoga, all life is yoga, doesn't mean whatever I do is yoga, automatically, spontaneously. There is a path, there is a way. And in this path, how does the path of yoga opens? There is a very interesting symbol in the uh, one of the ancient Upanishads, Katopanishads, it's really a marvelous uh, 
book which speaks of one of the paths of yoga, not all the paths, but essentially about uh, the way of knowledge. So it says that it describes the human being as a kind of chariot and where you have the horses as the senses and the vital and the rain as the mind and the person who is driving the chariot is the one who is holding the reins is the buddhi, the discriminative intelligence. The body of the chariot is the body and one who has physical body and the one who is seated is the soul. And then it says something very, very interesting. It says, and the path is the objects through which the senses move. It's very interesting. When we talk of path of yoga, we think of something inside us. It's very fascinating. It says the objects, the events, the circumstances of life is the path through which this chariot moves and leads one. So what, have, what is the role of the buddhi in this whole process? It must make a choice in which way it wants to go. In fact, when Shivindu describes the yoga of self-perfection, he says the first necessity of this yoga is, and which is the easiest thing, within nature, nature has created a device which can help us to enter into yoga. And this device which within nature evolves is the buddhi, the discriminative intelligence. And it is this, the more we develop this discriminative intelligence, the more we are ready to enter into a state of yoga. In fact, this buddhi is something which distinguishes human beings from animals. That's why human beings need to justify everything. Even the criminal needs to justify his acts. We need to refer to the buddhi. It's there in human nature. The unfortunate part is that most of the time this buddhi is a slave. This discriminative intelligence is a slave to the vital. But if this can be somehow made free by some method or technique, if we may say, then this buddhi becomes a catalyst for the change. So the first necessity of yoga is to within nature we must discover some part which is most receptive, most ready, most open to the process of yoga. So if we imagine the lower hemisphere as a kind of, uh, you know, well, as a kind of circle or something, you know, from, some, from bottom to up, something is climbing up. And the upper hemisphere as a zone of light and peace and harmony and truth, then the peak of this lower hemisphere, the peak of the mountain on which the sun rays must fall first, that peak is buddhi. This is one of the things which helps human beings to steer the journey of yoga in a safe way. In fact, the mother says, <clears throat> if it, many people mistake, when it's, she was asked that what is the sign that somebody has a spiritual capacity? This is not a question of capacity. Yoga is not about, repeat, not a high intellectuality. Sure, in those words. Yoga is not a high intellectuality. Yoga is not an emotional fervor. It's not sitting and doing some dancing and drama and some bhajans and, you know, getting into a state of emotional high. It's a very deep truth of our own being which we have to discover and realize. And to enter into yoga is not easy because if that greater consciousness touches 
then the fuse blows off. So the first teacher that must come in yoga, there are number of teachers which come or number of priests that follow this, uh, that perform this sacrifice of yoga, but the first priest is buddhi. It must step out of its slavery to the vital and must tell nature what is the right path, what is the wrong path. What rule book will tell us this? There are no rule books of yoga. The book of yoga is inside us. So this discriminative intelligence is the first teacher and it must train the human nature, discipline the human nature to tell us what will lead us Godward and what will not lead us Godward. This is the single criteria. All that helps us to grow towards light, all that helps us to grow towards that love, all that helps us to grow towards that freedom of the divine, all that helps us to evolve, progress, is essentially going towards yoga. And all this comes in the way, all that stands in the way, all that obstructs the way is its opposite. In the Vedas there are elaborate description of these forces. These are not just individual forces but cosmic forces. For instance, we can take a very simple thing. Faith helps to grow in yoga. It's a very simple thing. People mock at it. In fact, the mother says, some of those who are very intellectual, they mock at these things as mere sentimentality. It's not sentimentality. Faith helps. It's the stuff which helps us to grow into yoga. Man cannot proceed one step without faith. When I open this door and walk out, I have the faith that I will survive at least when I open it. <laughs> of course, even when we know everything. At every step of life, faith is necessary. How much more in the process of yoga? On the other side, doubt clouds the consciousness and prevents one from entering into yoga. That's why when we read the so-called rules of life from the yogic standpoint, they are given basically from what will help us to uplift our consciousness and what will cloud and obstruct it. Simple thing like physical exercise. If you do physical exercise, it's really easier to enter into an inner state. Simple thing like this. And when we don't do it, when we have a very heavy belly all the time, then it's very difficult to meditate. Ask a person to have a heavy meal and sit for meditation and you will see him snoring high into nirvana. <laughs> it's because the whole consciousness gravitates. It's, they are not moral rules, they are not religious rules, they are simply basic, basically logical things. So logical, so simple that even by common sense we can understand it. Indulgence into an extreme form of passion and activities. It thrills the consciousness and clouds it. The consciousness becomes extremely restless. We cannot interiorize. Watch a TV show, the American Idol or the Indian Idol, and start sitting into yoga to meditate. See what happens. All these songs will start repeating inside. Except that you are the singer and you are the stage. I am not speaking of experts. Experts can sit anywhere, do anything and get away with it. But for us who are beginners and all of us are beginners and it's much safer to remember that we are beginners. Certain things are very helpful and 
that is why many of these things are preparation for yoga second problem is precisely because the lower and the higher could not meet the old yogas found a way that this soul which is involved in nature if there could be some way to extricate it out and catapult it into the higher and vanish that's enough this used to be the goal of traditional yoga that if i can deliver this little child which is stuck in the womb of nature the soul is like a little baby stuck in the womb of nature if i can deliver it out of this leave aside this womb and enter into a higher state that's the end of the journey well the path becomes little different in those paths we need to simply pick up one point in nature which is strong enough and go deep 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 into it drill deep and if we go deep enough we'll touch its absolute we can take up the mind we can take up the heart we can take up the vital and the method is very simple if we take up the mind for instance it's not by reading lot of books that the mind does yoga reading books is a preparation for yoga like the warm up exercises of course it does not mean that the more books we read the more prepared we are for yoga sometimes they can confuse us <laughs> because books are of all kinds they carry their own influence and atmosphere but reading books which are helpful to yoga now the mind must be prepared to prepare the mind to enter into yoga or to enter into yoga through the mind to make the soul deliver out of the passage of the mind the method prescribed was to fix the mind on one single object idea thought image and to hold it and that object that sound that symbol becomes a key to penetrate through the layer because anything when we concentrate deep enough or far enough it ultimately becomes like a laser beam and it penetrates through the layer the thick crust of consciousness that we are wearing over our head we always wear a thick hat we only we don't realize it we carry its burden all through our life but if imagine you know if somebody had so much heat here rather than a heat there it penetrates through the head and the consciousness shoots up this was the old yoga to let the mind dwell on one single idea or image it, the vaster the idea the better the chances or the heart focused on one single form face mantra image and one focuses the heart on that gives all one's feelings emotions all relationships there is a very beautiful sanskrit term sarvabhavin my one in every relationship we are expecting a kind of joy that's what relationship is about and if all these expectations can turn towards the divine and we turn all these emotions towards the divine whether the emotion of uh, father or mother or child or beloved or friend playmate we can have all kinds of relation there is a little story of shirobindo where he says krishna comes and appears before someone and says you know nobody treats me like a friend treat me like a friend so like a friend and playmate of course traditional yogas have gone so far as to say you can even treat the divine as an enemy that's but this is all where the path is to take one out of creation similarly with the will if it becomes one pointed in the service of the divine so these are have been the traditional paths but here there is something else which is added not only must one penetrate and open 
the veil between the lower and the higher but one must receive the higher into the lower that's what is transformation is all about it's not enough that from the mind the consciousness escapes into the supramental gnosis from which it is unable to come back because the mind is too small not ready to contain it it's not enough that from the heart we enter into that kind of inner bliss of uh, inner communion but also that that love that light that wideness that beauty that bliss must pour into this form formation this matter this mud and change it so in shurabindu's yoga the process becomes little different from the traditional yogas in the traditional yogas the whole method is primarily on exclusive concentration and nature that much which allows for this concentration so all that is necessary for nature is to undergo a what what is called in india as a sattvic change if we have certain good qualities in us it prevents nature from straying too far so that when we actually sit for concentration and contemplation we are not straying into all kinds of territories we are focused but here the work becomes little more complex because not only we have to find the divine but fill our members with the divine touch so instead of speaking of some mental rules shobindra speaks of psychic change that's a first necessity this entire nature must undergo a psychic change the mind the will the emotions even the physical body must receive the psychic touch and undergo a psychic change so the next teacher after buddhi becomes the psychic so we must find this psychic yesterday we were speaking of that and this psychic must pour itself into this nature and work out the first change but here comes another problem the psychic is a very shy uh, shy creature <laughs> it's very shy by nature it doesn't come out when there is uh, disharmony it doesn't come out where there is ugliness it doesn't come out where there is grossness it doesn't come out where there is crudeness it instinctively goes inside it waits when there is too much of poison in nature so first buddhi prepares then the psychic is ready to come out so a lot of processes of yoga are about our inner attitudes which allow the psychic to emerge and spread its influence on nature so when we speak of yoga it's primarily as a psychological process and not just physical and it stands to reason because man is not just body we are not just body that we can just do yoga with the body even when we do yoga with the body there is always a psychological component and i suspect that many of the benefits that come even physically from many of the processes is because there is a deep aspiration and faith usually when do people go to i mean i am just using an analogy to all kinds of you know alternate medicine when they have tried all stuff and you know it doesn't work out now they are really wanting help they want to get cured they want to be fine and when they pick up something with a very strong suggestion that look this is going to cure you the mind just catches on to it fortunately there are not too many contradictory reports about it 
unlike you know medical science with each drug you will have 10 side effects written and when we take a drug you know we are also worried that what's going to happen to us when we take it now when we take up a simple process well you do this and you will be set right and we do it now outwardly to an outer eye it appears that we are simply doing a process but when we look within there is the aspiration to be fine there is also the faith that i will be fine there is also the sense of surrender to whatever one has read and one believes in and then of course the sincerity of practice so this all this works within to create a climate so that from within the divine healer can step out and heal us i'm not saying that techniques don't have a value they have a great value when we are human beings but they have a subordinate value and we are primarily psychological beings and yoga is primarily a psychological process it's a lot to do with attitudes than with techniques in fact shobindo says what is the perfect technique of a world changing yoga not one that takes man with a bit and catapults it into nirvana it's not possible to have that kind of technique so yoga is about attitudes and among these attitudes mother has given a number of attitudes one of in one of our conversations he speaks of the five psychological perfections of course uh, narad would be much more qualified and would tell us about this flower which champa flower uh, what is it called in english narad plumeria no it's champa flower with five three aims yeah in uh, one of the common names is frangipani Oh, yes frangipani that's right. another common name is the lay flower because in hawaii they make those garlands they call yeah. them lays they put them around right so thank you so much so frangipani and this um the common name in india is champa and this is five petals and we all know mother used to transmit she has said that when i give a flower mm-hmm. i transmit states of consciousness flower can be a means of yoga building can be a means of yoga when golconda was being built um somebody you know complained to mother about the noise and about this and that and shirvin the writes a letter that it's not just a building which is being constructed it is mother's yoga in the material world how can construction become a part of yoga so here the mother clarifies when she she has there is one of the conversations where she picks up this flower which has five petals and she says do you know what each petal signifies each of them is a quality which helps us to grow into yoga it prepares the nature to receive the divine touch we believe that you know just in an unprepared consciousness we can just touch that fire and light we can live with that belief but it's very dangerous if at all that fire touches us in one of our uh, you know nowadays uh, last 30 40 years because of this new consciousness a thirst has awakened in the heart of earth to know more and more and because of that thirst there are always you know when people want diamonds before the diamond comes the imitation jewelry is already you know surrounded the market <laughs> and imitation jewelry is cheap so everybody rushes to it you know so everybody wants an easy to do exercise for yoga and there are popular books on yoga and you know there have been many yogas one of them is kundalini yoga and people go sit for a two day or seven day course and their kundalini awakens so mother was asked about this whole thing 
Mother says, my child, the worth of this awakening is only when it is spontaneous. And then she says that 99% of the time when people say that they have this experience and this is awakened and they are usually pulled a vital force which is always waiting. When we say that I am going to call in the force and you know I feel good and I end up saying that it is the supramental force. Mother says, my child, are you ready? You are so small. In fact, somebody asked about supramental. She says, you are so small. The supramental wouldn't find room to even put its little toe. We are so small. We may look very big, but we are so small to receive it. So the whole process is to prepare ourselves. She says, if one percent, the true force comes down, it will shatter. It will break the limits. There is this line in Savitri when Ashupati uh, has the vision of the mighty mother and he asks her for this boon that would you come down on earth? She says, what thou hast won is thine, but ask no more. How shall thy speak for men whose hearts are dumb? Make purblind earth the soul seer vision, the truth seer vision's home. Man is too weak to bear the infinite weight. Truth born too soon might break the imperfect earth. So that's why these things which we often bypass, no, no, who is going to go into this? Let's find a way, a technique. It's very dangerous. Techniques are techniques. They have their rules. They have their limitations. They are very helpful. They make us feel good, but only for a moment. The people who go to camps, stay there for seven days, ten days, feel very good. But one comes back the same old person. If only there was such a magic to get rid of the ego, then, well, anybody is really worth. But the prize of the ego is a complete self-giving. There is no other way that one can really get rid of this that sticks into our very flesh. So, she describes this, this flower and she says, of course, the petals, each petal, the, the name changes with person to person. It's not that they are fixed qualities, but some of the qualities that she speaks about, one of them is aspiration. It's the very first thing. It's the fire that is inside. No aspiration, no yoga. We may do everything, but when there is no fire, this is the first thing that is lit, that must be lit, because without fire, this fire must prepare the vessel, it must bake the vessel, make it strong and ready. When this fire is not lit, then there is another way that the divine shapes the vessel, and that, by, that is by the fire of suffering. But that's not the right way. Man is not born to suffer. We have two choices, either to allow this whole process of purification by the fire of aspiration or, well, if we don't, then there is the fire of suffering. But the problem with that is, it doesn't declare itself as the fire of suffering. It starts with something very pleasant. Those who want to read a real horror story written by the Divine, please read the path of later on, which was an essay written by the mother when she was 15. And this is an essay 
about a man who who is actually she doesn't say earlier but it comes later on who sleeps and sees a dream and in the dream he's standing at a crossroad and you know there are two paths so he just doesn't think and on impulse takes a road so as he takes this road it this road appears very nice you know very nice flowers and everything but something within him tells him don't take this path he simply says doesn't matter i'll go i can always return back so he goes and goes and then he sees again some other sides greet him but something insists don't go further return back come back come back but he insists he goes on then suddenly he starts seeing that there are some crevices on the side this is a real yoga experience it's described in savitri this is to emphasize the need of the these uh, you know the these five foundational qualities so he sees that there are uh, some skulls which are hanging by the precipice they are trying to come up and again they go down and he is little petrified by this sight he says what kind of sight is greeting me that on one side there are trees then there is a cliff and there are you know beings trying to come out and again going into the abyss again he hears this warning go back go back don't go any further but he he is so scared he closes his eyes and runs he thinks that by running fast and running away from this sight he can escape so he runs very far and then he opens his eyes and he finds desert all around and there are no more those figures and there are some rocks and these desert by now he thinks he has escaped and then he goes still further and he sees a precipice and a haunted castle is standing there and he believes i have found my goal he thinks i have found ultimately i have reached the goal and it's a very old worn out castle and as he sees he is caught up in that state he is no more able to hear this voice because he has strayed very far from it and that's the time the mother describes he suddenly falls from the bed and wakes up and then he realizes he says that now i understand the path that he took was the path of later on and this path of later on leads to the castle of nothing at all so that's the name of the castle nothing at all was he stick in the path of later on and in in her very beautiful way she says what had happened is that this man has slept off with his homework thinking that i'll do it tomorrow <laughs> so in yoga there is a homework to be done and when we put it off for tomorrow we are probably heading towards the castle of nothing at all the worst is that we begin to feel that this is drawing us closer this is the goal the worst is that after a while when somebody asks the mother that uh, one who is hearing the psychic voice can he lose contact with his soul she says because initially this voice is very its whispers it's a little whisper she says but if you do not heed it after some time it recedes into the background and one can lose contact with one's own soul one stops hearing it because one moves further and further so these things are not horror stories but real life stories of people who have walked the way of yoga and one must know that it is a serious effort 
which must be done happily. That is the difference. <laughs> it's not just a cakewalk which has to be done seriously, but a serious effort to be done happily. And this happiness can only come when we know the aim, when the fire of aspiration is lit, when we are clear about the goal, because this shows the path. How is this aspiration to be lit? That's where we have the significance of many things. This aspiration can be lit in certain human beings simply because they have arrived through the past evolution. This aspiration is lit when we are in company of certain people in whom the fire is raging like a volcano. This fire of aspiration is lit when we read Sri and the mother's works or works which contain that fire inside it. These are the ways, the company of those and that I suppose is also the significance of Om. Om is not a conference for intellectual debates. This can be done anywhere. There are so many forums for that. Om is a conference to nurture this inner fire, to bring together this fire and so that all of us can go back more and more fortified with this inner aspiration. So this is the first thing, the fire of aspiration. And then the mother says, you must tend it, you must watch over it. It's the most sacred treasure. Everything else we may lose, but let's not lose this aspiration for the divine. Along with that, she says, another quality that is required is sincerity. And she describes sincerity very beautifully. Of course, all of us are very sincere. We say, after all, I am the most sincere person. Morning, 8 o'clock, I am right dot there at my office, while others are coming at 9. But I am there at 8, I am over sincere. And then I come back in the evening, at well, not evening, but late night at 9 o'clock, whereas others have left at 6. Who can be more sincere than me? I am more qualified for yoga. Mother says, that's maybe sincerity in the eyes of the world. Sincerity in yoga means transparency. Nothing is hidden from the divine. We are like a little baby in front of the divine. Mother says there are some eyes, if we look into it, the eyes are the most important part of the human nature. If we look at the eyes, we will know a lot about human beings, but we look at everything else except the eyes. Of course, very often the eyes are also looking somewhere else. There are people who never look into the eyes and speak to you. There are people, especially politicians, who sometimes wear, you know, dark glasses. <laughs> don't see their eyes. Eyes are the instruments through which the soul can receive and the soul can express itself. So she says there are some eyes in which if you enter, you enter deep, deep, deep and come in touch with the other person's soul. How do we know we have touched that? We feel in the other person something sweet and warm. It's like a little spring which is inside. And when we touch it, that sweetness and warmth comes out. That's what the mother used to do. People would go to her and she would look into her their eyes and they would come back changed. What was she doing? What magic? Their own souls came out. There's this beautiful story of um, Singapore president when he went to mother and he had all kinds of thoughts he was restless, impatient uh, our uh, Devan Nayarji and you know that I must, uh, what will I tell her then one of the thoughts that comes to him is oh well I'll tell her that you know you, uh, good old lady you are doing really a great work <laughs> he had gone around the ashram and he felt that yeah it's a great work so he will compliment her something like that 
But when he went on the threshold and he stood face to face, he forgot everything. He didn't know what to say, what to utter. All thoughts had vanished. Why? Because when one is transparent, something, she, she could just enter and that being came out. And there's so many experiences, so many people have recounted, that how by a mere look from the depths, the very being of the person could come out. Now this is transparency, when nothing is hidden. But she says there are others in whom when you enter, you meet a thick layer and then a thicker layer and a thicker layer and then you meet an iron door. <laughs> of course the mother could penetrate through that. But she says after a while the door shuts again. And they put on masks and roam around the world with masks. And it's very dangerous in yoga to wear masks. It's very dangerous in life to wear masks. But in yoga it becomes doubly dangerous because it tears off all the masks. It's very painful. So it's important along with aspiration to have sincerity. If we have the aspiration and no sincerity, we are in for trouble. She says in one of her passages that, My child, if you are not sincere, do not take up yoga. As simple as that. It's a fire that burns. If you have come to the divine and said, I am yours, and the divine has said, yes, the whole world cannot keep you away. Imagine what is going to happen. On one side the divine is pulling the left arm or the right arm. On the other side the world is pulling the left arm. What will be the state of such a person? And that is why one of the definitions he gives of sincerity is very interesting from a psychological point of view. To have no conflicts. I deal with people who have conflicts. I can't tell them be sincere and your conflicts will go away. But the principle is there that if all of our nature is oriented towards a single goal, there is no conflict. All conflicts come because we are divided. Shubhita says all difficulties of yoga come because of this basic contradiction. And all suffering comes because of this basic contradiction. When our being is united, there is no conflict. It doesn't mean that we have to change our vocation or change of the people in our life or just uh, go away somewhere else. But inwardly we must be clear and one-pointed and that should be the orientation. So that's sincerity. Then of course she speaks of devotion as another quality. Devotion is not religion. Devotion is the very essence of yoga. Devotion is a recognition that there is beyond us that source of all love whom we seek but never find. Devotion comes very naturally when we are face to face with that which so much far exceeds us. Devotion, humility, these are very natural products of yoga. The touch of the divine brings in us that humility, that devotion because we realize that we are not uh, you know, we are not face to face with another human being. In one of her passages, the mother says that, My child, if you come to the divine with a little mind and try to face that vastness with that little mind, it will break, it will shatter. Of course, we believe that our little mind is a great mind, but 
it's nothing compared to that all consciousness. We just heard a little bit of what Shadhalu was saying that how that consciousness is simultaneously conscious in all the points of the universe. What consciousness that would be? We are not even conscious of this little point which is here. That consciousness is simultaneously conscious of all the points in the universe. At all the times, not just at one moment. And Shivinda wants us to live in that consciousness and to receive it. We are not even conscious of this littleness that we are. So this devotion prepares us. Second principle, the beauty of devotion is that we very rapidly grow into the image of someone whom we love. We bypass many, many things. It's very natural. And in many ancient traditions, it is regarded as a very powerful way. One of the poets has said that I went to see the color of my beloved. Actually, you know, the original words are very, very beautiful. Lali dekhan mein gai, mein bhi ho gai lal. I had heard that the color of, you know, my beloved is very nice. So I also went like a curious onlooker. Then what is this color? And by the time I returned, I was bathed in that color. There is another very beautiful uh, couplet describing this state where the poet says, of course the poet is Amir Khosro, he says that when I went to see my beloved, I went dressed up very nicely. You know, I, I was wearing the best attire. This is the attire of the ego. When we go to the divine, we go in the best attire. I am the best person in the world. I must be very special to the mother. After all, I am I. There is none like me. <laughs> So we go wearing the best attire, the best dress, inwardly, outwardly. We don't even realize these are very unconscious movements, but you know, yoga makes us aware. And says, I had dressed myself with all the tilak and you know, the, the dress and everything. And when I went to see him, as my gaze met the gaze of the divine, what did he do? The first thing he did was to snatch away all my attires. And I was left nude and blank before him. This is a real experience. This is not just sentiment of yoga. And from that core, love comes out. The willingness to belong completely and entirely to the divine is the shortcut to yoga. Sri says, if there is a shortcut to yoga, this is the shortcut. Because when we love the divine, we very soon begin to become like the divine. I have a very small analogy to this. The analogy is if somebody comes to our uh, to discuss with us high intellectual philosophies or a student or whatever, you know, a professor, then we make him sit into our study room and we take out books and we have a discussion and debate and the person goes back. If somebody comes saying that I want to be your servant, then we say, okay. Then the person is not only in the study room but moves around with us. He begins to know all our habits, tendencies, our likes, dislikes. If you really want, that's why, if you really want to know the secret of a person, ask somebody who is working there. He'll tell even the most things, you know, which nobody knows. But if somebody loves and is the beloved, then it's no more just going everywhere. Because servant is also, there is a threshold beyond which one cannot enter. 
When we go to sleep in our bed, the servant goes his way. But the beloved, the friend, his clasp is carried right. One shares the inmost heart and feelings with one's friend and beloved. So when we love the divine, when we develop this devotion inside, then very naturally we begin to know all the heart of the divine. He pours his blueprints. And this is not in terms of a book. That's the beauty. He leads us into the secret penetralia of existence where he is written, writing the unfinished book of life and shows us those chapters which nobody has seen. And we come back so much full of delight. So this is the third thing, the, devo the devotion. And fourth, of course, perseverance. Because no yoga can be done. Yoga is not a quick fix solution. So if we are looking for a rapid crash course, then we can just forget about it. As simple as that. <laughs> it's not a question of few days, few weeks, few months, few life. It's a question of few lives. Minimum 12 years, Sri says, just to purify the nature. And those who have walked the path know that this minimum is a great concession. <laughs> because the meaning of the word purification in yoga is very different from what we understand. And then he says, Mother says, 30 years just to bring out the psychic being. <laughs> is it a joke? We are dealing as if with some plaything. Just sustained effort. Who can do it? Only one who is sincere, only one who can persevere, only one who is willing to come back 10,000 times if we fail and fall, to continue, continue, continue. And someone wrote a letter to Sri Aurobindo asking him, that sir, uh, I sit for meditation but I cannot meditate. Sri Aurobindo writes back, practice, practice, practice. So again he writes after six months, Sir, I still cannot. He says, practice more and more. <laughs> this is the way. And to persevere means never to give up in the face of difficulties, in the face of defeat, in the face of failure, even in the face of breakdown. And I have met people like that. It's amazing. That is the spirit of yoga. Only he can scale those summits who even after he falls 10,000 times is willing to get up at 10,001 times. So perseverance. And finally, we can use any of the word to this fifth quality but the one that comes closest is gratitude. The mother says gratitude and enthusiasm open the door of the psychic. Cheerfulness opens the door of the psychic. What is this language? How does gratitude open the door of the psychic? And what is this gratitude? He says gratitude, we often think gratitude because I have received this or I have got this. He says gratitude because the divine exists. Can we imagine just for a while that there is no divine in this world? Just imagine a state and our being will be filled with horror and fear. That's why some people have turned the logic other way around and said divine is a creation, but it's not that. 
But that's a metaphysics, we'll not get into that. But just gratitude that the divine exists. Gratitude that he has called us to the path. Imagine if we were just struggling on the way, not knowing the purpose of life, its aim, its goal, what would have been our state? So gratitude that the divine exists, gratitude that he has called us on the path. Gratitude simply for being. And then the mother says, when we live in that state, then each, even a grain of sand becomes an occasion for his worship. So it's not that automatically whatever we do becomes yoga. There is a misconception that whatever we do becomes a yoga. Whatever we do in a certain state of consciousness can become yoga. That state of consciousness is a necessity. If there is a state of consciousness which is yogic, then yes, whatever we do can become yoga. If the state of consciousness is ordinary, then even if we do great things in the eyes of the world, it is not yoga. It may be bhoga or it may be the path towards roga. It is not yoga. So it's the way, the consciousness inside, that is the mark of whether an activity is yoga or not yoga. I think this is the broad picture. We'll be enlarging on this theme in the next uh, couple of sessions on the 12 aspects and on the four aspects of the mother and the 12 attributes. But what I would request is that uh, when we have the next session on the 12 uh, attributes, if instead of this talk, we should just give a thought. I think um, most of us are aware, well, we'll just speak about it, but uh, these qualities, sincerity, aspiration, gratitude, goodness, equality, what images and what meaning they evoke to us. And then we can read something from what mother has to say about it. So we can have it more interactive. So, if we can contemplate, and we'll see the meanings change. Sincerity means one thing in ignorance. It means something very different. As we have seen, sincerity is not about, uh, you know, that's regularity, that one is going and coming in time. But sincerity is about transparency, to have our being open like a child before the divine. What do we understand by love for the divine devotion? What do we understand by gratitude? And the meaning changes. So if we can just spend some time um, while playing volleyball or in the cafeteria or having tea, if this can go on in the background, we can, we'll find, we'll be in for interesting discoveries. This flower of psychological perfection. May it be with all of us. <coughs> we can have questions. We have some time with us. We have about half an hour. So we can have a lot of questions. Yes. The collective aspect of the yoga is, uh, in Shurabindu's yoga, especially because it's not a yoga of individual nirvana, therefore it's a yoga of world transformation, therefore there is a collective dimension of the yoga. And this collective dimension of the yoga means that all the things that we speak of individually, 
this aspiration, this sincerity, this faith, all this must develop into a collectivity. Now this collectivity is formed spontaneously by a coming together of different elements of the universe. In Sherbindu's collectivity, it's not a collectivity which is located or localized to one geographical place. I think Shadalu made a very interesting observation when he said that physically the ashram is located in Pondicherry but psychologically it is uh, everywhere. And there is the word of the mother in 1958 after 56 when the supramental descent took place. The mother says that initially all of you were like little individuals. So I used to carry, you were all in a cocoon within me. So if you see the history of the ashram in the initial phase, everybody was like an individual shut within himself. And that was the necessity of the work that time. So much so that it used to go to a proportion, you know. Sahanadi writes letter to mother, mother, so and so asked me to come home for learn taking for a class in French. Should I go or not go? Pavitrada, okay, Sahanadi may say that you know she is uh, after all in Indian by temperament. Pavitrada, French, who has travelled you know to Tokyo and so many places. When somebody gave him some tomatoes to <laughs> prepare a juice and drink, he says I cannot take it unless the mother says yes. So he asks mother and mother says this time okay but tell him not to give next time. There are so many instances when people used to ask Pavitrada to sign. Same is true of Nalnida. I am told Pavitrada would say that I will not sign unless mother tells me to do so. What an image of individual consecration to the divine. So she says that was a time when all of you were carried within a cocoon and that was his first state where mother and Shurabindo were, I mean when I say mother it includes both. So when mother was experimenting with human consciousness, individual types to see how far they can bear the yoga force. But a time came when the whole process became collective. It was already a decision taken in the beginning when Shurabindo was asked uh, in fact, Mother says that initially we both had this choice before us whether we should do the yoga individually first and realize and then come back or we carry everything together. And then she says the choice was spontaneous. Automatically a collectivity began to form and the yoga began to develop along those lines. So this collective yoga in 1958, the mother declared that it has now become something concrete and this collectivity we can feel. I mean, yesterday I felt OM is really a concrete collectivity. So within collectivity, there are collectivities and collectivities. They develop their own force, their own form, their own soul. It's like a group soul. So mother says that in 58, she says that earlier all of you were apart. But now, especially after the supramental descent, it does not matter where you are. But then she says something very interesting. All who have declared themselves in their consciousness to be a disciple of Shurabindo. It's a declaration within. It's not something. They are like one body. They move together. What does it mean practically? 
it means that just as within me if one part is moving and the other part is in not moving i experience a conflict a disharmony and its effect so in collectivity she says the problem is everybody takes everybody's burden so some are moving fast but it does not mean that they will you know it's like we have all been put on the same boat so it's a very difficult process so when some people move fast others benefit she says if one of you conquers one thing in yourself however small it becomes a victory for the whole world and i really fancy that one person in ashram you know really conquered the habit of smoking and today in the world there is so much you know about smoking and quit smoking and you know anti tobacco day and all this this is really a ripple effect and at the same time but at the same time if one person has a serious problem everybody is pulled down so we are in a kind of situation we are in a tug of war on one side is the inconscient on the other side is the supramental evolution and all of us are together and in this collectivity we have to move now how are we to harmonize this is another problem that always there will be in a certain parts of nature which are open and certain parts which are not open and the same is true of individuals individuals become like little units the same process that we do upon ourselves that we have to do in a collectivity so if in me one part is open and the other part is closed what do i do do i simply accept it or i work upon it i put a pressure on it to change 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 because there is no other way if i simply accept then i just remain perpetually in a state of inner conflict but the moment i work towards the change then automatically the conflict begins to resolve that's how an individual yoga proceeds those who remain always in state of conflict end up either in nursing homes or all kinds of places because it's just not possible so in collectivity when there is there there will be always a pressure upon individuals to change this is a very interesting aspect of the yoga and this pressure for change comes from very interesting ways like for instance somebody may find a defect in you the mother has spoken about these things and the person points out so what should be my approach i must look within myself she says if it is true work upon it you should be happy that you have discovered something which was not right and if it is not true don't bother but don't go on the defensive because that is an indication that something is really seriously wrong look inside sincerely so in a collectivity there is a constant pressure for change much greater pressure than in an individual yoga because in individual yoga we are left with ourselves but in a collectivity there is a constant pressure and till the change takes place the conflict continues because the whole pressure is towards that now what are we to do in such situations there is a beautiful letter i wish in fact i had an impulse to bring sahana this book but I, i didn't bring it but there is this aspect is answered that in collectivity we have all kinds of things which come up there is always in human nature individually and in collectivity truth and falsehood which is mixed together love and its opposite faith and doubt which are mixed together what are we to do in such situation i'll take an extreme example 
It's not just an example. It has its own relevance. Sahanadi asked Sharbindo that some of us disciples have been talking very badly of mother and Sharbindo and they are very critical about you and what should be done. Some say it's okay. Others say it's not okay. I feel a very strong reaction inside me. Is this reaction good? Is it bad? Yes, it's a long question. I have the book with me. We can maybe read out the entire passage. So Sherbindo replies that yes, there should be no hatred, cursing, etc. But if only individual, it was an individual yoga, then an equality of indifference was enough. You could just remain indifferent to whatever is happening and that's enough. But then he goes on to say, but here there is a truth to be established, a work to do, a truth against which immense forces are arraigned. Forces of falsehood. Then he says, when these forces attack the leaders on the way, openly, if there was an open physical attack on the ashram and the leaders, you would understand it. But just because the attack is subtle, should one should a passive and neutral attitude be alright? It's a very beautiful letter. It's to be read. So basically, whenever we do a collective yoga, each unit must try to rise to its highest. This is what the mother eventually said, that we must look inside and rise to our own highest point and stay there. This highest point for each one will be different. For me, the highest point may be to stand for truth. For another person, the highest point may be to constantly invoke the grace. For a third person, the highest point may be peace. For a fourth person, the highest point may be tremendous love. These are all, you know, highest points of individuals. Now, when each person strives to rise to the highest, it helps the whole community, the whole collectivity, not community rather, the collectivity to be lifted up. Because it exerts a pressure. And that is the way of the collective yoga in this. In fact, Mother says this, this is the method she has suggested, that what should be done. She says it means that each of you have to now strive to be at your highest. And the more we do it, the more the collectivity advances. Now, what is that highest is best left undefined. Each one has to see and feel within oneself because for each one it will be different. And surely if one deceives oneself, one is again, you know, the whole process goes on and uh, one is hit very hard. But this is the process of collective yoga as I understand. The same process but on a much larger scale where individuals become simply units in a large body. Yes, Following on this, uh, Alok, perhaps you could talk about Mother's comment of the group soul that comes down to help her in her work. Yes. Um, I, I mean, Narad, you could say, I know, Narad has so much knowledge, but he, he keeps inside with uh, all his humility. Uh, maybe uh, you should speak about it sometime tomorrow morning, but about the group soul. The mother has spoken that there are, one is that there are souls which come together for a certain work. They have decided to do the work together and it's not by chance that we all have met. We have all decided uh, in previous lives to come together for this work. And the other is that each collectivity has its own unique soul which presides over its evolution. Each race, each nation... Each collective unit has its own way, its own dharma, its own path through which it proceeds towards that great ascent. 
and that makes the matter more and more complicated in this great journey of yoga so yeah yes concept of money and um, how I mean it's, how does one collectively how can one do that collectively yeah uh, we have a tomorrow I think Shadhalu is a whole session devoted to money and uh, unfortunately I'm just the wrong person to ask about money and politics because two things no brain cells are there to really understand <laughs> so, so I'm I can say something, but uh, it will be laughable. <laughs> so, but we have a whole session dedicated. So I'm sure, you know, he'll address it. It's a very good question and in today's times, you know, it's really very relevant. So only thing I can say is it's a very good question. <laughs> I'm reminded of a little joke when Amrita was asked by the mother, Amrit, what is the relation between art and the divine? <laughs> so... Amrita says, Mother, very beautiful, very beautiful. <laughs> but look at it, that there was the great truth that he spoke. Though, I mean, he was even remotely not an artist. But it's true that the relation of art and the divine is a relation of beauty. So I would suggest, I would fancy that the relation of money and the divine is... <laughs> <laughs> is somehow it's it's very probably <laughs> necessary for the manifestation of the divine upon earth but let that be for another day yes Sataj. so i think somewhere i read sri arbindo talk about opening the chakras from top to bottom yes uh, there is a small letter of sri arbindo where he says that in this yoga there is no willed process to open the chakras uh, in Kundalini Yoga, you do it by the power of will. One wills and by the power of mantra, focuses on a particular chakra and wills to pull it up. So in this uh, yoga, it's not done like that. It's done by another process, by surrender and self-giving to the divine. So the divine takes hold of whatever chakra is ready in us. And usually the top chakras, the crown or the heart chakra are the one which is most open. And then as the other parts become ready through life experiences, they also begin to open. Uh, it's very simple to understand. Chakra are basically vortex of uh, energy. Behind every element there is the infinite. But we don't receive the infinite uh, consciousness or the infinite energy or the infinite delight. Because each species, each individual uh, is given only that much energy, consciousness and delight as it necessary to live within its frame. This is the frame of nature. So, uh, if we really to receive something beyond the frame, we must be actually um, aspiring for that which is beyond the frame. Uh, otherwise, if we remain in the shell of the ego and by some force process we open it, then there is the danger because, you know, we are not ready for that. It's like running a very high voltage current on a uh, fuse, I don't know what they call in America, which is not ready, so it will blow off. And instead of light, there will be darkness. Uh, so it's uh, important to, when we give ourselves to the divine, the divine purpose and the divine goal, then the divine sees to it that, well, this much energy which is given to this fellow only for running his livelihood, that's not enough. 
So spontaneously he begins to pour by a natural law of yoga all the consciousness, delight, truth, light into the system which is necessary for the work. And simultaneously all the little mundane problems of existence also he takes care because you know he knows that this fellow is involved with something else. So the mundane things are taken care of by the divine thanks to his grace. Um, that's the meaning of the word yoga shema vahamiham. So I take care of all your needs. Uh, otherwise in normal ordinary human life we are all our energies are directed only towards self-preservation and preservation of needs. So more than that is not given to us. That's why the chakras remain closed. So that's the top down view. Yes. Uh, each one has to, you know, feel for himself, but the one thing which is indispensable is sincerity. And of course, it's understood that without aspiration there is no yoga, because aspiration is the fire. But the one indispensable basis of yoga that Mother has repeatedly uh, asserted or, you know, asked us is sincerity. Sincerity means to have nothing in us which contradicts the divine. So this is very difficult. It's a lifetime of sadhana. But the whole nature and consciousness must press towards that. Uh, so she says there are two things. One is a central sincerity. And then is the integral sincerity. Central sincerity means that fundamentally one wants the yoga for the sake of the divine. So this makes a fundamental central sincerity. And not for any side uh, payoffs from the yoga. That if I do yoga, I'll become a great yogi or I'll become a Swamiji or, you know, I'll be invited for lectures abroad. Who cares? <laughs> or, you know, I'll suddenly be respected and revered and my name will be put on posters all over. Any such side um, kickbacks of yoga will only give a kick if it's a real yoga. If it's a, you know, everything is done under the name of yoga, that's different. But in this yoga, I'll give a kick because it's not acceptable. So the central sincerity means yoga for yoga and not for anything else. Once that is clear, the rest one has to develop and that's a question of lifetime. Whether my mind is attuned to the divine or something else, my heart is attuned to divine or my will, my physical constitutions, all these things. So one quality, if one has to choose, from what I have understood of Mother and Shivinda, I always say this, please, all of us who speak is our angular vision. Shivinda and the Mother are vast and infinite. Read them directly and don't listen to us. But it's okay <laughs> since we are all together. It's the joy of sharing the delight of the Divine together. It's nothing else. None of us is a teacher of integral yoga let alone Swami and all such stuff. Mother, when Udar came for a trip to India, to US and went back, somebody told him, Mother, Udhar has become like a guru. Of course, he had the personality of a guru. Had he done this, he would have really been an instant hit. Surely, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but he was like a child, a beautiful child of mother. So, mother said, what Udhar, I heard that you became like a guru, Swami. So, Udhar said, no mother, who told you this? She said, good, otherwise I would have broken your head. <laughs> so, that's sincerity.
So we have to constantly uh, reorient ourselves and it's something which grows. So if from what I have understood of Mother and Shubhendra, I'm sure I stand correction. There are many people, I mean, Narad, uh, Julian, Dakshina, who are very deep into yoga. Hasmuk Bhai is there. All of them are, you know, for long standing. They, they would probably add something. But from what I have understood, if one thing I have to pick up, I would pick on sincerity to develop it. Uh, I did realize we, we still have five minutes. Ah, I think so. So, couple more questions. I was going to add that while I would pick on sincerity, <laughs> I'm glad. Actually, I had suddenly realized something, you know, I would like to add. <laughs> while one quality, I would pick on sincerity, but one quality that naturally comes and gives the greatest delight in yoga is love and surrender. So thanks Narad for completing it. But surrender will speak at length in, you know, maybe the next session. So one thing which gives really makes yoga a delightful journey, not a strenuous, high-strung process. Yoga should not make us more anxious. So is surrender. And Actually, it's very true. I'm glad because Narada has touched a very central point. Yes, surrender can be a key to yoga because um, it really makes the path not only delightful, but it's a safeguard on the way. But only problem is that it must be rightly understood because many people understand by surrender just a tamasic surrender. But uh, surrender, openness, these are the watchwords of the yoga. And in one of Shobindo's again celebrated one line <coughs> he says, surrender is the beginning of yoga, surrender is the path of yoga, surrender is the end of yoga, culmination of yoga. So, but surrender is actually not so much a quality, it's a process, that's why you know. But among the qualities these, but surrender is the process. Aspiration, rejection, surrender is the path of yoga. Sincerity is all, all the parts of the nature in all the details of every movement and moment. If it is realized, then the transformation will take place instantly. This is Mother and Shrivinda's words. If anyone could realize integral sincerity, the transformation will be instantaneous. So the very fact we are all untransformed beings <laughs> tells enough about ourselves. And the first step towards sincerity is to know that we are insincere. The mother says, if you uh, think that you are sincere, be sure that you have straight away landed yourself into the uh, worst falsehood. <laughs> Nobody is sincere. It is only by divine grace and life experiences and a very long, long journey that one can even begin to become a little sincere. But that should be the direction to move. Yes. There are so many things that you say are needed to progress. And you say aspiration is the key to this. I have so much to aspire for. Where do I start? <clears throat> you see, when you go to a king's palace, and you want to meet the king, what is the fastest way? 
don't get lost into meeting the king's ministers or the retinue form a direct relation with the king he will send word and call you into the chambers i remember a man's uh, very touching story of uh, anand mahima he went to meet her and you know they said well she cannot meet because she is busy this has happened to people in the ashram also but i am just being spontaneous so what is coming to my mind but there are stories like that with mother and shobindo so this man uh, you know was feeling distraught that i came to meet her and you know i couldn't meet her he could have gone around met the disciples and been happy but he was carrying this burden in his heart that i came to meet her and i couldn't meet her anyways so is her will so he went to the station and suddenly somebody came running to ask him mother has called you so he was surprised his he goes running and says mother has fixed a day tomorrow for your initiation he had not gone for initiation it just gone to meet finally he was initiated he was not prepared he was not carrying anything so she gave her own sari to for him to wear like a dhoti it was a traditional form of initiation so the whole thing is that what should be the central aspiration instead of aspiring for this or that aspire for the divine for his love for his ananda for his consciousness in what one word for him so ask him for his own sake and when we do that all other things are contained in that one advice so if you want to get your roads repaired in india if you apply to the municipality you know the application will not reach if it reaches the grants will not come if the grants will come it will be swallowed up 10 years 20 years will pass so what people do is they find a shortcut they somehow arrange that the local minister should come to their locality so before he comes the road is repaired and if he has to come to meet you then your house also will undergo a repair everything will be set just right and then the minister comes so ask the divine he will make sure he will send the right forces the right beings the godly beings the right guidance so that the whole nature becomes ready to receive him so ask for one thing all else will follow the divine and don't worry about other things ask for it.